0: Welcome you back to a series we 're calling law School uh, if you 're joining us for the first time or maybe first time in a while, we called this series Law School because in it we are we 're studying the law of God, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments each week we 're looking at a different commandment and uh, I hate to start on this note, but I said this to the nine so i 'll say it to you I have um, Such strong feelings about the message I'm about to share with you. And uh, notice I didn't say good or bad, just really strong feelings. Because on Friday night, this happens to me every once in a while. On Friday night, I had a terrible nightmare about this message and me delivering it. And it was one of them things, I'm sure you've had this before Where you have a dream that just, you you wake up, you don't even remember the details, you just feel awful, and it takes you like half the day to figure out why you're in such a funk. And then for whatever reason, you remember the dream, and then you spend the rest of the day trying to process what you now remember. So that was Saturday for me. And I figured it was either because this is a bad message, uh, or because it was a message that maybe more than a few people really needed to hear. It was Saturday. I couldn't have rewritten it anyway, so this is the only one I got. So you're going to have to decide... If it's the former or the latter, and and the good news is you'll know in about 30 minutes here. Today we're looking at the fifth commandment, which states, honor thy father and thy mother. Before we get to the passage of scripture that kind of helps us understand this one, um, I just wanted to take a few minutes, kind of set the tone and lay a foundation for this, because it does require a little bit of foundational work. Students of the Bible, uh, and particularly the Ten Commandments, have noticed that the, the commandments themselves, they don't have, um, they, can, they can be taught out of order to a degree. It's not like you can't teach coveting before stealing or something like that. Thank you. Um, but there is a flow. The flow to the Ten Commandments is that the first four uh, aim at your, your relationship with God where the back six aim at your relationship with people. Another way to phrase that is that the first four commandments are more spiritual in nature. The back six, commandments five through ten, are more social in nature. And of course, the first of the social commandments, which we happen to be looking at today, is a commandment that aims very narrowly at the family. Because the fifth commandment doesn't say honor everybody, even though there are other passages in Scripture that say God's people should do that and should be known for that. The fifth commandment, the first of the social commandments that involve your relationships with other people, is all about the family. And I just want to offer to you that God is communicating something of profound importance by having the first commandment that is a social commandment be one that aims at the family. And that's that there's an integral link by God's design between the strength of the family unit and society as a whole. And that's actually communicated in the promise that's attached to this commandment. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he quotes this commandment and he says that this is the first commandment with the promise. And the promise attached to this commandment, one of the things that makes it unique, is that if this commandment is obeyed, you're promised um, that it's going to go well with you and you're going to live long in in the land the Lord thy God giveth thee. And people have looked at that promise over the years and scratched their heads because obviously there's been a lot of people who have done a great job honoring their parents, but they didn't live very long. They died young. And so the question is, well, what are we supposed to do with that? How should we understand this promise that's attached to the fifth commandment? And the answer is we have to understand that the Ten Commandments were not given to an individual. They were given to a community. Really, they were given to a nation, a society, the nation of Israel. And therefore, the promise that's attached to this commandment can't be understood individualistically. It has to be understood communally. And so, what this prop, the the promise attached to this command, what it's really getting at is that when families are strong, uh, society in general is going to be far healthier, far stronger, far more stable than if families break down. You think through that long enough, and by the way, we could point to countless sociological and cultural studies that back that up. There's a direct correlation. There's an indelible link between the two. The question is, why is that? And there's probably a lot of different answers to that question. I just want to answer you one. I just want to give you one. It's because our families, and I'll throw this caveat in here, parentheses, whether we like it or not, our families have a profound impact on who we become as people i want to offer you three quotes. This is from David Brooks in his book, The Second Mountain. He said, those of us who wish to pride ourselves on autonomy, on the self-made life, on freedom of choice, are often humbled by the recognition that archaic patterns are playing through us. This is what caught my eye. I highlighted this as soon as I found it years ago. He said, your personality is the hidden history of the places where love entered your life or was withdrawn from your life. It is shaped by the ways your parents loved you, the ways they did not love you. George H. Morrison, who's a pastor in Glasgow in the early 20th century, said, A man may travel to the far Antipodes. It's a way that people used to refer to Australia and New Zealand. A man may travel to the far Antipodes. He may rise to be the friend of princes. But there are two things which he never leaves behind when he takes the wings of the morning or mounts with wings as eagles. One is the foreordering will of God who sees the end from the beginning. The other is the influence of the home. And finally, Dr. Robert G. Lee, famous pastor in the American South in the early 1900s, said, The matter of supreme importance to the nation is not the schools, it's not the state, it's not the national government, but homes which produce a noble civilization. A church within a church A republic within a republic, a world within a world, a kingdom within a kingdom is spelled in four letters, H-O-M-E. If things go right there, they go right everywhere. I could continue, but I think the point is clear. Our families, whether we like it or not, they have an incredible impact on who we go on to become as people. Therefore, a society that lets the family unravel essentially allows itself To unravel. And so I've said everything up to this point to simply lay this before you, that of the back six commandments, which all focus on our relationships with people, the commandment that deals with the family comes first, because the family is the first, it is the most primary, it is the most important, it is the most profound of all human relationships, upon which so many other things hang and are determined. And so if that's true, and I believe it is, and basically this teaching is built off of that, and in some ways is kind of designed to prove that, if it's true that the family unit is that important and has that profound an impact, not just individually but societally, I think there's two questions that should be answered. The first is, what exactly is a family? The second is, how are they supposed to work so that they can do what God says they're, they're capable of doing? And so those two questions are going to serve as guideposts for our time together, um, Just before I get to the the, the passage of Scripture here, I would just ask you, maybe I'll repeat this later, but you're going to hear a lot of comparing what the Bible has to say over against what traditional and more modern societies say. I would just ask as we walk through what we walked through this morning, would you just have the vulnerability to ask yourself, uh, to be open to the idea that you have been profoundly impacted, discipled, and molded by something other than what God says? I've been dealing with that all week, and I think for this teaching to be um, helpful and and maybe even transformative, uh, we got to be willing to ask ourselves those questions. Um, So with that, let me get to the the, um, passage of Scripture we're going to be in today. I'm going to read you several verses from the book of Proverbs. I'll be in Proverbs 23. We'll read verses 12 through 16, and then 22 through 25. It says, apply yourself to discipline and listen to words of knowledge. Don't withhold discipline from a youth. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Strike him with a rod. I knew I'd get amens on that. (laughs) Strike him with a rod, and you will rescue his life from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will indeed rejoice. My innermost being will cheer when your lips say what is right. Verse 22, listen to your father who gave you life, and don't despise your mother when she's old. Buy and do not sell truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of a righteous son will rejoice greatly, and one who fathers a wise son will delight in him. Let your father and mother have joy, and let her who gave birth to you rejoice. This is God's word. Um, Let me just repeat this. There's going to be two main questions we're going to aim at today. The first is, what is a family? The second is, how is it supposed to work? Once we get to that second question, we're going to look at parenting and ask the question, what is the real purpose of parenting according to the Bible? And then we're going to look at, how should children relate to parents even when they are grown and are adults themselves? We're going to end on that note because it's universally applicable and incredibly challenging when you look at what the Bible has to say. But first and foremost, before we get to that, we have to ask the question, what exactly, according to the Bible... What exactly is a family? This question, I kind of spent the first half of this week tormenting myself with it because it's a a surprisingly difficult question to answer, if only because what the Bible has to say about the topic of family is so unique and it challenges every other uh, kind of paradigm and understanding. Uh, What I mean by that is that the Bible's understanding of family on the one hand, is far broader than the traditional understanding and yet far deeper than the modern understanding. So let me walk through that. And again, I I said I would probably repeat this, but as I walk through the traditional and modern understandings of both family and parenting, would you please just have the courage to ask yourself, to what degree have I been influenced by that? So first off, um, the traditional understanding of family uh, is one that basically sees your family very narrowly as only the people that you share a blood bond with. Now, to kind of give you um, a picture of, of what that looks like, there's this line from the movie, The Godfather, which I've never quoted in a sermon before. It's a big day for me. Where Al Pacino, he's playing the character Michael Corleone, is speaking to his brother, and here's the exact quote. He says, Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again, Ever. Uh, that line really captures the traditional way of thinking about family. It kind of narrowly defines your family as only those you share a biological bond with. They and they alone are the insiders, and everybody else that you interact with throughout your life are perpetually outsiders. <clears throat> the modern approach to family, I can't even <laughs> say this without a smirk on my face, is one that has basically gone completely the other way, and it throws the word family around so much to the point that it, that it means essentially nothing and I I hate to do this to you, but in the movie franchise, The Fast and the Furious, uh, the main character... (laughs) Settle down, class. The main character, Dominic Toretto, played by... (laughs) Played by Dominic Toretto... I'm uh, oh, sorry, it's Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, which whatever his name is, <laughs> it ain't Vin Diesel. Um, not his Christian name, anyway. Um, he, you know, the, he, he's constantly calling the band of miscreants uh, family because they like cars or something. I don't know. I only saw like the first 30 of them, and I haven't finished the franchise yet. But the point is, that captures the modern understanding of family, that basically, if we have literally anything in common, a hobby whatever, then yeah, sure, we're a family. And in our culture, which is The modern West has become so, we're so individualistic, we're so transient, we're so incapable of forming deep and meaningful relationships, we can't even recognize them anymore. It's in our culture where it's not surprising, corporations even throw that word around in an attempt to appeal to employees, to recruit and retrain people, which feels manipulative when you see we're a family around here painted on the Walmart break room, probably not. You can't fire your family so it's inappropriate for a corporation to say that. The point is, in our modern society, when you throw that word around as often as we do, it winds up meaning exactly nothing. And so the point is, if I could summarize here, the traditional understanding of family is incredibly narrow. It, it defines it as only those you share biology with. The, the modern understanding of family is extremely broad, but it's just skin deep. You know, you've taken baths deeper than the modern understanding of family. When you look at what the Bible has to say about this topic, you'll find that it challenges both the traditional and the modern understanding because on the one hand, it's broader than the traditional, but deeper than the modern. Jesus perfectly captured this idea Uh, In a specific incident recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel account, chapter 12, where Jesus is out teaching, and he's with his disciples, not only his 12, but but at different points in Jesus' ministry, he actually had hundreds, maybe thousands of followers that were loosely referred to as his disciples. In Matthew 12, he's teaching, and somebody comes up to him and and says to Jesus, informs him that his mother and his brothers are looking for him, and Jesus responded to that in a way that was, Jesus kind of had a habit of doing this, but he just communicated something that was completely against the grain of his extremely traditional society. Jesus asked the question, well, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he gestured to his disciples, people that he shared obviously no biological bond with, and he said, this is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And he he followed that by saying, for whoever does the will of God, that person is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And what Jesus was saying there... uh, which was extremely challenging to a traditional culture like his own, was that obviously it is possible to become family, even with people that you're not biologically related to. However, um, at the same time, what Jesus said was extremely challenging to the modern concept of family, Um, Which kind of throws that word around like it doesn't mean anything anymore because Jesus was saying, in order for there to be family, there does need to be a deep bond. In that case, it needs to be people that have covenanted together to do the will of God. We talked about what that meant two weeks ago. And so I've said all that. I know I kind of took my time getting to it. But if you were to bottom line, if you were to boil down um, everything that the Bible says about this thing called family into one succinct statement, if you were to ask the Bible the question, what exactly is a family? this is the best I have this morning. The way the Bible defines family is a community of people uh, bound together by a lifelong covenant. A covenant being a promise that you make with another person that you will love them and you will be for them and you will be with them regardless of what other circumstances arise in life. Uh, If you want a, a be absolutely beautiful and really moving picture of this. I would encourage you this week to read just the first chapter of the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's short, and I can summarize it for you pretty quickly. The story of Ruth starts off with this man named Elimelech, who's married to a woman, Naomi. And uh, they have two sons, and they decide to move from Israel to the nation of Moab. And once they get there, the two sons marry two Moabite women. And not long after that, Elimelech and the two sons die. So almost immediately after this, Naomi, is. she's widowed, she's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, and all she has now is two daughters-in-law that she obviously shares no biological bond with. And so she's she's extremely um, sorrowful, she has nothing in Moab, she really has nothing waiting for her back in Israel, but she decides to go back there and she tells her daughters-in-law, don't come with me, stay here, because I can't provide a good life for you there. I'm too old to give you sons, and even if I wasn't, there's no way you'd want to wait that long to marry, so just stay here in Moab. It, it'll be better for you. And one of the daughters-in-law listens, but one of them refuses to leave her. Her name was Ruth, and Ruth, the, the word of God says, Cling, she, she, she refused to let Naomi go. And, and what she says to her, uh, it, to me, it's one of the most moving passages of Scripture. She looks at Naomi, and I'm paraphrasing here. She says, where you go, I will go, and where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. And she ratified that covenant by saying, may Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and I. That's the language of covenant. And according to the Bible, when two people look each other in the eye and that kind of covenant is formed, regardless of biology, in that moment, two individuals have become a family. That's why if, if I don't know how, aware you are of this, but adoption as we understand it in our culture today did not exist until Christianity created it. Nobody adopted the way that we think about adoption now until Christians did because Christians understood, wait a minute, we've been adopted into God's family even though we're not naturally born as brothers of Jesus, so why wouldn't we do that for other people? And so for 2,000 years, Christians have understood that when you adopt a child, even if you don't share a biological bond with that child, you are family because you have covenanted together. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, could write to the church in Ephesus and say, you're not just citizens of the same kingdom. You are members of the same household. You are family, united by the bond of the Spirit. It's why Paul could write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and say, Timothy, when you relate to the older men and the older women in your congregation, you do so as your spiritual fathers and mothers. It's about a lifelong covenant between individuals, regardless of biological bond. When you understand what the Bible says about family, this is pretty interesting what that means is that a lot of people who share biology are not family. A lot of people who don't are. <clears throat> so much more to be said there, but that's all we have time for today. So having defined family according to the Bible, now I want to talk about, secondly, how a family works. And I told you there's, there's two questions that I want to answer kind of under this umbrella, and then we'll be done. The first is, according to the Bible, what is the real purpose of parenting? And then the second is... How should children relate to their parents, even when they grow and are adults themselves? So the first question we're going to tackle here is, according to the Bible, what is the real purpose of parenting? Before I answer that question straightforwardly, let me do the same thing that I just did with the concept of family, and I'm going to look at how societies have answered that question historically, and how the answer that the Bible offers is unique and both affirms and yet ultimately challenges both. Uh, This one might get a little bit uncomfortable, but what's a sermon if it doesn't make everybody uncomfortable? All right, the traditional understanding of parenting. Um, This is true all through the Bible. We can see countless stories that highlight this, and this is true in traditional cultures today, that the purpose of parenting is really all about control. You control um, what career path your child takes. You control um, who your child marries. You control specifically what child, what family your child marries into. You basically uh, dictate the course of your child's life so that that child can make you look good and uh, they can advance the name and the status of your family in society. That's the traditional approach to parenting. Uh, modern, The modern approach to parenting, again, um, has basically seen a pendulum swing in the op- opposite direction. And, and so in our culture, And for whatever reason, this seems to have really been dialed up in the last two or three years. What you're seeing in our culture, the the modern um, approach to parenting is not at all about control. It's not about controlling your children. It's it's all about, and it's only about, affirming your children. Uh, More and more experts, I'll, I'll put in quotes there, you see this all the time, experts are writing books and giving lectures about how parents should not try to... Um, exert any kind of control or authority or influence in their children's lives whatsoever because children need to be left alone to figure out the best, uh, the the big questions of life on their own, to find their own path, to self-actualize. And so really the role of a parent in modern society is to basically stand on the sidelines of a child's life and, and cheer them on as they go and kind of you know, follow their heart sort of thing. The most recent manifestation of that idea, here's why this might get a little bit uncomfortable, but all I'm doing is explaining what modern approach to parenting is and what it creates. The most recent manifestation of this idea is found in the fact that now it's becoming more common in a lot of places in our society um, to ask children, even at an elementary school age, questions like um, what gender they are, what pronouns, what name they should use, what what clothes they should wear, what bathroom they should be using. All that is is the modern approach to parenting kind of uh, headed towards its logical trajectory. And so if I can summarize here, the traditional approach to parenting was all about controlling, whereas the modern approach to parenting, a pendulum swinging the other way, is all about affirming. Um, The Bible challenges both approaches. It actually has, a, it, it somewhat affirms, but it ultimately challenges both approaches. Um, and so here it is, the moment you've all been waiting for. The, the purpose of parenting, according to the Bible, is not to control your children, and it's not just to affirm your children, it's to instill wisdom in your children. That's the, that's the according to the Bible, that is the primary need that your children have, and it should be the primary goal that parents have if they are informed by a biblical worldview. Let me read it to you in verses 15 and 16, and verses 23 and 24. It says, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will indeed rejoice. My innermost being will cheer when your lips say what is right. Verse 23, Buy and do not sell truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of a righteous son will rejoice greatly, and one who fathers a wise son will delight in him. So the the clear emphasis in these verses, and and you would see this kind of end-to-end if you survey the entire book of Proverbs, the emphasis is on instilling wisdom in a child. What it means to instill wisdom in a child, it's about, there's a lot of different ways to phrase this, but it's about um, giving them a coherent grid that they are able to overlay onto their lives so that they can, um, they can discern what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is true, what is false, what is wise, what is unwise, and ultimately what is living for and what is, dying, what is worth dying for. Uh, instilling wisdom in your child is about getting them to the point where they don't need you anymore because they're capable of standing on their own two feet and navigating the big questions of life with wisdom. Now, here's where the Bible both affirms and challenges. In order to get a child there, of course, you will need to exert all kinds of control in their life. Uh, like the the traditional approach emphasizes. And again, to get a child there, you're going to have to pour all kinds of love and all kinds of affirmation into a child's life to remind them that they are a person of worth, they have intrinsic value and dignity so that they can have a healthy sense of self, which the modern approach emphasizes. But according to the Bible, neither one of those are the ultimate goal. The goal is to instill wisdom in your child. You you, you heard it in the quote here. I'll just read it again to you. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will indeed rejoice. That's how a parent, that's how a Christian parent thinks. It's not, let me just. Love and affirm you because I'm terrified of telling you no because you'd be mad at me and then you'd reject me, which is kind of the pitfall of the modern approach. It's not just let me control your life because I'm terrified of you making a mistake which will ultimately reflect poorly on me, which is probably the biggest pitfall of the traditional approach. It's let me instill wisdom in you so that you can see reality for what it is and navigate accordingly. Let me instill wisdom in you so that you can navigate the big questions of life with wisdom, so that you can handle all that you're likely to experience in this life, things like failure and loss and pain and injustice and unfair criticism and rejection and even success with wisdom. When I see that in your heart, then my heart will be able to rejoice. Now, of course, that raises the question. I think every one of us would like to have, I, I think every good parent would like to see their child exhibit wisdom and live a wise life. The question is, of course, well, how do we get them there? The answer in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15 is foolishness is tangled up in the heart of a youth, the rod of discipline. Will drive it away from him. What this verse is teaching, first and foremost, is something that you don't have to be a parent to agree with, which is that children are naturally unwise, meaning their life is going to be a disaster unless somebody loves them enough to step into their life and to intervene uh, and untangle them from this web of foolishness that they might have wisdom. And the primary way that that happens, according to this verse, is through this thing called discipline. Now, if you survey, if you look at the Hebrew word translated discipline here and you survey the book of Proverbs, you'll find that that word is used no less than 30 times throughout the book of Proverbs, which in and of itself should communicate to us that there is an integral link between discipline and wisdom. They go hand in hand. Uh, the word, however, in our culture, you know, we're so anti-authoritarian and we're so individualistic, you hear discipline and it's immediately perceived as a negative thing. When you look at how this Hebrew word is translated all throughout Proverbs, it's not a negative thing at all. It's not always a, you did this bad thing, so let me discipline you. It's, it's a lot of times it's just simply translated instruction. So it's a proactive thing as well as a reactive thing. And when you look at the totality of the meaning of the word, it's basically, it's the equivalent of of the modern day concept of coaching, which I think is a really helpful way to think about your role as a parent. Because what this word basically means is that if you are, if your approach to parenting is, is informed primarily by the word of God more than it is anybody else, this means that when you approach your children, you'll do so realizing they're not your buddies, like the modern approach tends to emphasize. You'll also realize when you approach your children, they're not your property, like the traditional approach tends to emphasize. A Christian parent whose, whose approach and philosophy to parenting is informed primarily by the Word of God will approach their children the way a, a coach approaches athletes on a team, with this understanding that my job is to get you ready to play this game that we call life with an understanding that I can't go out on the floor with you and play for you. And so the the approach to parenting in the short amount of time that God gives us to influence our children, specifically in the formative years of life, is to do everything that we can to get them ready for this game that they have to play ultimately by themselves So we do everything we can to teach them the rules of the game, to study them so that we can learn what their strengths and their particular weaknesses are, and then to offer them discipline so that they might go out and play it well with success. Now, two things about this discipline, two vitally important things about the discipline that parents are called to offer children. First and foremost, discipline needs to be tailor-made to the child. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, it says, teach a youth about the way he should go. I want to emphasize the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. A lot of commentators will point out that what that proverb is getting across is that wise parents have to make sure that the nature of their training fits the nature of their child. Anybody who has multiple children knows personally that children from birth are different kids with different temperaments, different personalities, and they respond differently to different modes of instruction. And so the point is discipline cannot be a one size fits all kind of thing. We've all heard stories of parents who have raised multiple children. Some of them turned out well, some of them not as much, and the parents are so bewildered. And, you know, the old saying is, I, you know, I don't know what happened. We raised them all the same way. According to the Bible, that's what happened. You raised them all the same way, but they weren't all the same kids. So first and foremost, wise parents need to tailor-make the discipline they offer to their children to the child they're offering it to. Secondly, and maybe even more importantly, Scripture is absolutely unwavering in the fact that whatever discipline is offered from a parent to a child, that discipline needs to be done in love. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, here it is, just as a father, the son he delights in. What Proverbs is holding up there is the expectation that any kind of discipline that's administered from a parent to a child is to be done in such a way that that child knows they are loved and they are delighted in, and that's never going to change. And that the discipline is ultimately for their good. It's not to prove a point. It's not to, you know, break their will. It's not like some kind of rock'em sock'em robot, that kind of thing. It's about love. <clears throat> it's about, I see this thing in your life that if unchecked, is gonna ruin your life and I love you too much to let it go unaddressed. So if, if you pause here and kind of zoom out just to summarize everything that we talked about, and then we'll move on, which again, please sympathize with me here. We could do a summer series on parenting alone. I'm just trying to figure out what needs to be said in the short amount of time that I have. What Proverbs is prescribing for parents here requires us as parents, first and foremost, we need to have ourselves a coherent grid, a coherent framework that allows us to determine Uh, what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad, what is wise and what is unwise. If our goal is to instill wisdom in our children, obviously we can't instill something in them that we don't have ourselves. So first and foremost, we need to have wisdom, a wisdom in a framework of reality that we can both teach and model to our children. And then once we have that, we need to discipline them according to that framework in a way that first off, takes who our children are into account and secondly, communicates to them that they are loved and they are delighted in, and that's never going to change even in and through the discipline. Now, one final thing before I move on here. <clears throat> Proverbs is, is, is clear. You have to read it cover to cover, but Proverbs is clear that even if you do all of this, all the things that we talked about, not perfectly because nobody does, but even if you do it consistently, even if you do it well, there simply are no guarantees. Uh, that your, child are go- your children are going to turn out perfectly. Um, even the, the verse that we just looked at, if you train up a child in the way they should go, when they're old, they will not depart from it. If you take that verse out of context, uh, it looks like this is a guarantee blanket statement that if I do my job as a parent, my kid turns out well. Therefore, if they didn't, then I must have failed. But if you read Proverbs end to end, you realize that Proverbs does not offer promises as much as it offers principles, meaning you can do your job as a parent. And, and your child still go astray because of reasons other than a failure in your parenting. And so my point is, there are no guarantees, but according to Proverbs, if we do what's laid out here, then as parents before God, we've done the job that he has tasked us with doing. Once more, so much more that could be said there, but given the fact that I don't think you want to sit through a three-hour lecture, we got to move on. So with that, we're going we're gonna, to um, move to really the final point today. Uh, This is the one that that hits everybody. Uh, This is where we're going to talk about how a a child uh, is called to relate to their parents even when they're grown and have become an adult um, yourself. And this is obviously where we get to the actual fifth commandment, which says to honor your father and mother. The reason I wanted to save this for last is because it it hits all of us. We might not all be parents. We will all be children. We are children, regardless of what age we are. And... um, and, and, and I wanted to save this for last because it's actually not that complicated. It's not easy, but it's also not complicated. So before we get to what this commandment actually says and what it means, let me just draw your attention to what the fifth commandment does not say because I think what's not in there is as, as important and as telling as what is. All right? The fifth commandment does not say, admire your father and your mother. The fifth commandment does not say, Trust your father and your mother. The fifth commandment does not say obey or even love your father and your mother. It's just to honor them. Now, these are 10 principles that have served as the foundation of ethics for God's people for thousands of years. No part of this is left up to chance. God does not carelessly throw words around. So people have analyzed particularly this this commandment and asked themselves the question, why this word honor instead of everything else that you could have subbed in there? And I want to offer you two answers to that question. One is a little theoretical. The second one is where we get real personal. First off, the theoretical. The first reason God says honor instead of anything else is because there are a great range of situations in which you will relate to your parents throughout your life. When you are very small, uh, it is, it's appropriate and it is often necessary for you to depend completely on and, and to unquestioningly obey your parents no matter what they say. There's a lot of situations, particularly when you're a very young child, that not doing that might you know, put you in danger or even uh, it could be a, a matter of life and death. However, as you age and become an adult, that same dependency on your parents, uh, that same obedience to your parents that was once so necessary and so appropriate as a child would now prove disastrous as an adult. Scripture makes that plain when it says that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and two will become one flesh. What that's talking about is a separation of the family of origin as a new family unit is created and healthy boundaries are placed and relationships are necessarily reinvented. So the first reason that God says honor instead of anything else is because there's a great range of situations in which you will relate to your parents throughout your time here. The second reason is that there's also a great range of parents. And what I mean by that is quality of parents. Uh, There's a reason that I wanted to talk about the parent-child relationship before I got to the child-parent relationship. Because when you look at what the Bible says a parent should be, Let me just offer you three truths in light of what we just spent some time talking about. According to the Bible, uh, some parents are good parents. They were not perfect like no parents are, but they were consistent. They themselves were informed and transformed by the love and the wisdom of God, and uh, they demonstrated that to you. And they gave you a coherent understanding of reality, and uh, they taught you that, and they modeled that for you, and they disciplined you according to it in love because they really wanted to see you do better than them. They wanted to do you a better hand than they were dealt. They were good parents according to the biblical standard. Some parents, according to the biblical standard, really meant well, but they were unskilled parents. Uh, maybe they, they never really um, developed a great deal of wisdom themselves, and so they could not give you something that they themselves did not have. Maybe they over-disciplined you. Maybe they underdisciplined you. Maybe they were so hands-off in their approach to raising you that they really functionally did not raise you, which left you with a lot of obstacles in life. Maybe they meant well, but according to the biblical standard, they were unskillful in the way that they raised you. However, some parents according to the biblical standard, are downright wicked. Uh, they do things to intentionally harm their children. Maybe that's verbal. Maybe that's emotional. Maybe that's physical. And maybe that's sexual. When you consider all of this, you realize it makes perfect sense that God in this collection of 10 principles for life says there's one command that must be obeyed and can safely be obeyed, regardless of the situation you're in or the parents that you had, and that is simply to honor them. Now, honor in the Bible is a very unsentimental thing. You can honor somebody uh, even while you are creating healthy, appropriate boundaries between you and them. Uh, you can honor somebody from a distance. You can honor somebody that you never met because they chose not to play a part in your life. Uh, and you can honor somebody even after they're dead and gone. The Hebrew word for honor in the Old Testament is the word from which we get our English word glory, and it simply means to not take someone lightly. Uh, there are lots of different ways that cultures demonstrate honor. And according to the Bible, we should all look for ways to demonstrate honor for our parents in a way uh, that is culturally appropriate and likely to be received by them. But instead of talking about all the different ways that that might look, I just wanted to, to kind of narrow the funnel here and give us all one thing that I believe all of us can apply. There's one uh, way to honor your parents that is universally applicable, and that's to forgive them. For some of us, that might be um, maybe one of the hardest things we'll ever have to do. But it's also one of the best things for us. And I can show you that scripturally because Proverbs chapter 20, verse 20, says, whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out in deep darkness. His lamp will go out in deep darkness. All through Proverbs, there's... there's, um, there's always this metaphor, this imagery of, of walking in light and walking in darkness. And a lot of times when we hear darkness, we think like evil, like, you know, satanic or something like that. That's usually not what Proverbs means. Um, the uh, Wisdom is the ability to see reality clearly and therefore navigate life skillfully. Um, the opposite of that is to walk in darkness. And so with that in mind, what this proverb is teaching is that if you move through life perpetually bitter and resentful toward your parents, it will distort your life. You think about this metaphor that, that um, the author's leaving us here. It, if you try to navigate in, in um, what the Bible calls deep darkness, deep darkness is an environment that has no light in it other than the light that you yourself bring into it. So if you enter into an environment like that and your lamp goes out and you try to navigate that environment with no light source whatsoever then just think about how difficult that would be. You're going to be incredibly unskillful in the way that you navigate your environment. You're going to run into things and, and trip over things that would otherwise be so easy to avoid. Um, you're going to move through life with this constant sense of confusion and disorientation and wondering why things seem to be as difficult as they are for you. You're going to make all kinds of poor choices. If you make any progress at all, it's going to purely, pu- purely be by luck. And Proverbs is teaching here that if you choose to go through life bitter and resentful toward your parents, That's what your life is going to be like. And it's going to manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Uh, If you wind up getting married, it's going to manifest itself in your marriage. If God gives you a family, it's going to manifest itself in in your relationships with your children. But even if not, it's going to manifest itself in your relationship with God to a a large degree. It's going to determine how you view him and relate to him and think about him. It's going to even determine your relationship with yourself. And it's going to prevent you from making wise choices in life. And while a lot of people... Is just follow me here, while a lot of people go through life overtly and obviously doing what this proverb says you should not do, cursing your parents out loud, what I would just offer to you is that, in, in my experience, I think it's true that even more people go through life, specifically people that were raised in very religious, very fundamentalist, more conservative, kind of strict, moralistic homes, a lot of people go through life doing this, what this proverb says not to do without even realizing it. And all I mean by that, and I would just ask you to consider to what degree this is true of you, is that one way we can curse our parents is by actually out loud cursing them. And even if we don't speak to them anymore, we tell everybody who will listen how terrible of a job they did raising us, and I hate them, and I can't stand them, and I'm going to succeed despite them. That's the obvious way to curse your parents. The other way to do this is to churn your whole life with bitterness and resentment toward them and to curse them inwardly, even if you wouldn't give them the satisfaction of saying it out loud because you, you won't even admit to what degree they have impacted you, to what degree they've hurt you, to what degree you're wounded by what they did or did not do. And so I say all this to simply say that according to Proverbs, until that's dealt with, it will distort your life and cause you to make a mess of your life. And so with all of that in mind, let me just bottom line this and then we'll move to the conclusion by simply saying this. When, when you look at the fifth commandment, a commandment that simply says honor your father and your mother. What it means to honor your father and your mother is to draw a line in the sand of your life. And you choose to accept everything that they did or never did. You accept everything that they said or never said. You accept the part that they, play, they played or refused to play in the story of your life and you do so without a hint of bitterness or resentment. Only when you and I have learned to do that have we honored our father and our mother. And until we've learned to do that, then we have not, in the biblical sense of the word, we simply have not grown up. I was just thinking about this between the nine and the eleven. In our society, we, we have such, it's so common now for people to have these it, crisis of identity. We don't know who we are. And, and one of the things that sociologists and cultural analysts have pointed out that traditional societies had that we've completely abandoned and we suffer from is we don't have any kind of rite of passage that allows us to know when do I stop becoming a child and become an adult and it's funny we have so many answers to that we have so many ages assigned to things that we can't do until a certain age We have an age that you can smoke, an age that you can gamble, an age that you can drink, an age that you can rent a car, an age that you can run for the highest office in the land. But in modern society, if you were were to ask someone at what age to become an adult, we we don't have any idea when a child becomes an adult. I say that to say, if you were to ask the Bible that question, when do I move from being a child to an adult, the answer is the day you learn to honor your parents. Not until then. Do you see why this teaching gave me a nightmare? We're almost at the end of our time together. (laughs) Uh, What I wanted to acknowledge before we're done, because I think it would be so foolish and so unkind to not do this. I mean, if we left here, then all I would basically be saying is, hey, team, get over it, which is so unwise and so not helpful, and nobody actually grows that way. So let me just acknowledge before we close in prayer that I think no matter where you're coming from or who you are or what your story is, this is a hard teaching, And I say that because I don't know anybody that can look at what the Bible says a family is supposed to be, or looks at what the Bible says parents are supposed to be, and comes away thinking, man, that's exactly what my childhood home was like, on to the sixth commandment. Nobody feels that way, because one thing that every single person listening to this teaching has in common is we were brought into this world and raised by sinners, And so the truth is, I've been meeting with people one-on-one for over a decade now. I've seen this over and over again. Nobody really moves into adulthood feeling like they've been loved properly because in a very real sense, we have not. No human beings can love us properly. No human beings can love us the way that we need. Now, certainly it's true, some homes are far healthier than other homes, some homes far more damaging than other homes, but nobody moves out into adulthood having been given the love that they need from their parents. And so here's the point. The only way, <clears throat> the only way that we stop allowing ourselves to be defined by that, the only way that we learn to move out of our parents' home, not just physically but mentally, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually, the only way we learn to draw, draw that line in the sand of our lives and to be free from being determined by what happened to us in those formative years is if we come to understand all that Jesus has made available to us. Now, I I made mention of this just briefly on the front end of our time together, but in Matthew's gospel account, chapter 12, when Jesus looked out across his disciples and he said, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers, what Jesus was really saying that day, and I'd ask you to lean in here because we're almost done. And what I'm about to say, although it's the shortest part of the teaching, it's the only way to actually heal. When Jesus looked at his disciples and said, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, these are my mothers, what he was saying that day, although nobody could truly understand the wealth of his meaning, is that Jesus did not come down here simply to offer you this kind of individualistic, privatized, get your ticket punched and go to heaven when you die kind of salvation. What Jesus came down here to do is far more than that. He came down here to bring you into the family that you were made for the family that your first family simply could not be for you. Now, in one sense, and you heard me read these quotes on the front end of our time together, on, in one sense, it is so difficult to come to terms with the fact that God allows so much of who we are to be defined by the families that we were born into because we didn't choose that. That is, We're completely subject to forces beyond our control. And one of the hardest things for people to reconcile, I read this quote to you. This is the David Brooks quote. Your personality is the hidden history of the places where love entered your life or was withdrawn from your life. It's shaped by the ways your parents loved you and the ways they did not love you. I'm sure when I read that quote, there was a lot of people that, that reflected on that and nothing positive came to mind for you. It's, a, it's such a difficult thing to come to terms with how defined we are by the families God allows us to be born into. And if that was the end of the story, then that certainly would not provide a whole lot of hope, especially for those of us who were born into more difficult families. But that's exactly why Scripture promises us that when we give our lives to Jesus, we get the family that can give us the things that our first family could never give us so that we might become the people that our first family could never make us. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're going to close with this. What every single one of us eventually has to learn to do, and according to the Bible, we really have not grown up until we've learned to do this. Even if we don't speak to them any longer, even if they've moved on and they're no longer with us, we all need to eventually learn to look at our parents and to say, At one time in my life, you were God to me, but no longer, because in Jesus, I have the perfect older brother who has left his father's estate to come and rescue me, and by grace through faith in his name, he has brought me into the perfect home, the one I was made for, with the perfect heavenly father whose love is the only love that can really fill me And heal me and transform the deep wounds that my first family left me with. Because the more that that becomes real to us, the more we're able to honor our parents, to forgive our parents, and to become the parents both spiritually and biologically that someone else might need us to be for them. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, <clears throat> this is a tough one. <clears throat> like every command you give us, it's for our good. But like every command you give us, it's not easy, and we need your help. And uh, I started to think what a message like this brings to mind for people on the other side of this teaching. Uh, the hurts, the wounds, the things that maybe we started facing years ago, but we press pause on, and maybe you're calling us to revisit the healing that needs to take place god i just ask that you would give us grace that you would give us mercy that you would give us strength to own what we need to own face what we need to face process what we need to process and heal so that we can be free to live life as you've called us to so that we could draw that line in the sand of our lives and no longer be defined by the things that did or, or never happened to us please help us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, to honor our fathers and our mothers and to be the kind of people that can instill wisdom into the lives of the children that you place under our care. Please make our families strong. Please make us in every sense of the word as a church what your word's talking about when it talks about a family. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen.